0: Is it on? Okay. All right. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground.
1: Very good. Thank you, Danny. Hold on to the mic because I've got one more for you to do. You'll be doing the mark uh, as well. And I said, Let's bend the forces of turmoil and I want to take it. So, <laughs> let you guys fight over that. How many of you have ever heard the story of David and Goliath before? I would say most of you. Even if you didn't grow up in church, the story of David and Goliath is an epic story. And in terms of David's uh, life, it is the most detailed, well-crafted uh, epic stories that we have. It reads like an epic story of old that you might find in other faith traditions even or, or just in lore in general. And it's one of these stories that... Everybody knows it's about the little guy defeating the big guy. And uh, I just want to walk you through a couple things to remind you of what happened before this. So you had a time in history when the Egyptian empire is crumbling. And that meant everything north of Egypt was kind of in flux, including the people of Israel. So the people of Israel, which are a number of tribes that are trying to collectively make their own land and call themselves their own country, they had just acquired for themselves, much to the chagrin of God, a king named Saul, who was trying to pull them all together. But unfortunately, there were these pesky sea people called the Philistines who populated uh, the eastern Mediterranean, uh, which we would now look at, say, Tel Aviv, Gaza. Uh, that's where we're talking about, where they inhabited. And like everybody did back in that day, they were very comfortable
2: expanding
1: their territory. So they were trying to push west into where Jewish people had settled. And the Jewish people were trying to keep them uh, from taking more and more of their space that they took for themselves. So there's this battle that is now being waged. And you have the Philistines on one side and you have the Jewish people camped out on the other side of a valley. And there's this big dude named Goliath. Goliath was a giant. And depending if you read the Greek interpretation or the Hebrew interpretation, you get a little bit different number in terms of how tall he was, how many cubits he was high, because we're all familiar with cubits, right? <laughs> so, in one translation, he was nine foot nine. I mean, a giant by today's standard for sure. In another translation, he was six foot nine, which still today, I mean, that's Jim Van Winden type height, right? I mean, that's a big dude. And back then, you know, today I think the average height of a guy is somewhere around 5'10". So you're talking almost a foot taller. But back then, the average height of men was probably closer to five foot. So by their standards, either way you go, this is a huge guy. And what did Goliath do uh, that led up to this battle? Uh, Goliath yelled out to the uh, army of Israel and Saul who were all entrenched uh, in their fears. They called out and says, let's just limit the bloodshed. Uh, you all send out a warrior from your side to take me on. I'm the greatest warrior uh, of the Philistines. And whoever wins, wins the whole war. Now this was fairly common back in the day. This is how they did things. The, the, the way that they talked never really stuck. Uh, the battle might happen but you know, frankly, the losing side would never be okay with So there was always going to be more battles, but it was a nice idea anyway. So uh, Goliath makes this call, and nobody goes forward. David, uh, who wasn't on the front lines, but was making a journey from his home uh, in near Bethlehem, uh, he was making his way to the front lines to see how his brothers were doing and to take something home from them to assure his father that they were still alive. And on this particular day, he went to go visit his brothers of were okay? And he took some cheese for his brother's commanding officer, probably a bride. You know, probably, hey, take care of my brothers a little better. Maybe get them some new socks or something. I don't know what. But anyway, brought him a gift for some purpose. And while he's there, he hears the lion's tongues. And he's looking around, and none of the soldiers are upset at all. They're, they're cowering. And he happens to see King Saul, and he goes up to King Saul and says, what are you doing? You know, is anybody going to stand up? Don't we know who we are and whose we are? I mean, God is with us. We're not going to let this chump say this kind of stuff. And Saul was just beside himself in fear. So finally David pipes up to Saul and says, I'll do it. Let me go out there. And Saul's like, we're going to get your limbs torn off the limbs. And David's like, look, I'm a shepherd. I face lions and bears. I can, I can ward them off. I can, if I can beat them, I can beat this one. And so Saul decides to go for it. Now, honestly, we got to kind of look at this as an epic story, lore. So just enjoy the story. Don't get hung up on details and all that, although there's interesting detail we'll get to in a moment. And so Saul is like, okay, and maybe in Saul's mind, he's thinking, I'm going to send this kid out there. He's going to get killed and squashed like a bug in a second. But everybody in the trenches is going to be inspired by his courage and motivated to protect this and and, and address this injustice where a giant kills a kid. And so he goes for it. He he puts all of his armor uh, on on this kid because the the way we have this uh, Goliath described, is the guy has the the latest state of the art armor from head to toe. The guy is built for war. So David has all this stuff from Saul on him, including a sword, and the kid can't move. He's like a little boy in his dad's suit, you know? He's going to stumble all over the place. So he sheds it all off. He says, I don't need this stuff. He just grabs his little satchel, puts five smooth stones in there that he can use with his sling, and he heads out to see this guy. He calls out to this Goliath. Here we go. Let's it's on. And he enters into the battle arena, but he keeps his distance. The reason he keeps his distance is he has no, no desire or intent to do hand-to-hand combat with this guy because he knows he doesn't have a prayer at hand-to-hand combat. But what he's good at is an strike. He's a shepherd. He knows how to use a sling. Even to this day, if you uh, go and do some research on using a sling, you'll probably see some articles about Bedouin shepherds to this day in the Middle East, who practice with these things and get these things with it so fast that they really could lodge a stone into somebody's forehead. David was a sharpshooter. If
2: you really want to get
1: into some deep weeds, Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite authors, he wrote a book called David and Goliath, where he really goes a step deeper You want to know the juicy details on that show for Praxis uh, this Wednesday at 7, and I'll give you some of that stuff. But one of the things that Malcolm Gladwell certainly recognizes is David knew his skill set and chose to use that rather than fight on somebody else's terms and somebody else's way. He decided what he was going to do. So he does it. Stone lodged in forehead. Goliath killed. I want to do... Have you enjoy your morning so I didn't tell you what happened next which is he uses Goliath's own sword to cut off his head so a sure victory happened that day aren't you glad I spared you that <laughs> right. so it's interesting Keep here sometimes we look at this like some kind of miracle story like you know God took the stone and guided it just right so it hit just right but maybe, maybe there's a different kind of miracle we need to gather from the story maybe there's a different meaning that we can take away from this that's a little more readily available and uh, we can relate to better. What I see here is you've got David, who is hearing this guy uh, taunt his people and their God by extension. And David is offended by it. He's like, "This, this guy's faith isn't any greater than our faith, and I believe in the God that has brought us this far. And the other thing David had was perspective. He wasn't in the trenches every day. He wasn't hearing the taunts and believing the propaganda every day over and over and over again. He was able to get distance, go home, talk to his dad, pin some sheep, uh, be in his own space, clear his head, so that when he came back, he could clearly recognize what was going on. He brought with him a different perspective. Everybody else was entrenched in fear. David was choosing to build his life on faith. When the moment came. He didn't choose to fight someone else's battle some other way. He looked at how God made him, the skill set that he'd acquired, and used all of that together to do the best he could as faithfully as possible, and he saw victory happen. I think there's power here. And I'm wondering if, if some of you are facing a Goliath-type situation today, it feels like just a large thing is looming. And I'm wondering. Rather than waiting for God to, you know, sling a stone or, do some, or send lightning bolts or something like that, maybe, maybe what we need to do is to recognize that God really is with us, that God has made us in God's image. We have skills, we have capacity, and I wonder if we're immersed in the presence of God very intentionally. I wonder if we avail ourselves to whatever God would have us do. I just wonder if all working together, we might see more and more Goliaths fall. It's just as miraculous and maybe more profound. By the way, uh, I know that you know a warrior who is famous for defeating Goliaths time and time again. Uh, You've seen this happen year after year for many years. This warrior that I'm talking about, of course, is Stephen Curry. (laughs) who is just a little taller than me. And yet he goes up against these Goliaths that are six foot nine or whatever. And what did he learn to do? Airstrike, right? He's the guy that has inspired people to think differently about three-pointers because you can nail those things if you practice enough. This is his skill set, but that wasn't enough. He chose to use everything that God has with him and practice, practice, practice. So he could go right into the paint, right next to the Goliaths and maneuver around them and make them look like idiots as he makes makes a shot and gets the foul. I don't think it's all that different. You know, his body, his physique, his everything that he's doing all coming together, giving praise to God in its own strange way
2: with me
1: on that? Can I get an amen? Yes, of course, God is with the warriors. We do All right, well, there's another story that's kind of related to this, and Danny, I wonder if you would read uh, the Mark passage.
0: Came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although the other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking in the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that you're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other
2: even the wind and waves that they him. Thank you, Danny. Mm-hmm. You are off to the now
1: for the rest of the service. Mm-hmm. All right. Until the end, what, if you've got some more to add, I want to have an opportunity for a little Q&A and insights that you might have or questions. Uh, we'd love to hear from you before uh, we close the service out, so maybe you can make Ben be the, the mic carrier. All right. So uh, a word about this story of Jesus uh, that could get in the way terms of how we choose to approach it. What do we got here? We got a guy who is uh, in a boat asleep when the storm is raging, and he speaks to the weather, and the weather obeys him. What do we do in a story like that? Now, some hear that story, and just by faith, we accept it as is. and we'll say, well, that's what it says, so we're just going to believe that and move on. Some other folks, though, find that very problematic. And they start thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking. Okay, well, what happens if if he stops the wind? What does that mean for everything around them? How does that affect absolutely everything else? There's a there's a story in the Old Testament about God making the sun stand still so the battle can continue. Well, from a scientific perspective, that's very problematic. Uh, that would cause all kinds of calamity. Uh, in our created world So some people really get hung up on that and in fact some people look at this as it's a miracle story and they look at all miracle stories and they wonder I don't know if I can believe any of that stuff and they feel like they can't really take the Bible or the faith seriously Here's what I would encourage you to do we are bent on literal interpretation of things that is the Western Greek Way is to look at this thing and assume that everything we see is written as factually accurate. And what I'm wanting to say to you is, at the end of the day, that is not really the most important thing. If, if that's a key thing for you, great. Then let me give you a pass on something that may be more helpful. Even if you are literally then looking at this like this is exactly how it happened, that's not what gives you power in your faith. Because you're going to look for what is the meaning of this story going forward. But I would encourage you on a story like this, if you're getting tripped up on what took place here, to jump to the meaning, appreciate what the gospel of Mark is trying to communicate in their story remembrance about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the meaning that we take away from the passage is what matters most. Not Details and what what thing must have happened this way or not. Think that's what faith is all about. How do we find meaning in these passages? There is great meaning in this passage. So what do we have here? We have uh, Jesus who is on the boat, there's some other boats around. He's with trained fishermen, storm comes up, the fishermen are freaking out because they're not like modern boats that can handle a lot more than, than ours. Uh, today can, and they're panicking, and they're worried about the future, about what must certainly uh, would happen. Uh, They have true fear sinking in. False expectations appearing real is how I once heard that described. Meanwhile, Jesus is sound asleep in the boat. So finally, in their terror, they wake him up, and they say, don't you see we're about to die here, which is their calm way of saying Please help if you can, Lord, for in <laughs> trouble. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Can't you see him dying here? And I think God is okay with that when we pray uh, such rude prayers. But well, what Jesus does, check it out. He wakes up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. And it went calm. You know what's curious about the language here that uh, Bible nerds have identified?
2: Is the wording for this? He rebuked the wind and the waves. Rebuked. That word rebuke is exclusively used for exorcisms, for evil things.
1: It's as if we are deceived through Mark's remembrance here. Not that the wind itself is evil, not that creation is evil. We know creation is good and very good according to Genesis chapter 1. And so what, is, what are we looking at here? It's almost like what Mark is wanting to say to us is where you see this thing that you interpret as evil, there is a rebuke that can happen that is able to calm things down. I'm seeing a couple things here that I think are worth noting. The first thing that I think is super good And this is especially meaningful and I think relates to us when we're finding ourselves in the middle of any storm in life, whatever that kind of storm is. Because the first thing is, is name it. So Jesus here, he rebuked what? He rebuked the wind and the waves. He knew who he was addressing. He knew what he was addressing. And he called it out. And sometimes life doesn't afford us such clarity. Sometimes we're just walking around with all kinds of anxiety and angst over whatever problems we're experiencing and sometimes the reason that is is because it's not one thing it's a cluster of all kinds of things you know uh, it, holidays can trigger something we don't even know why we might be keyed up on a particular holiday and that's because it it touches and triggers all sorts of other things together and all of a sudden it's this conglomeration of angst and pain and struggle, and we're not quite sure what it is. We just know it's a thing that's there. Sometimes we get in an argument with people that we care about, and it's more than just about the argument. It's about other things surrounding the relationship. We're not even sure what to do with it. It's like this big hairball of a problem, and we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes something happens to us, and it just feels like this big, painful hurt and mess And we don't know what to do with it, but we know it's there. But even saying that we recognize that we've got a hairball of a problem is a great step forward. Because we at least admit there's a thing that needs to be addressed. Being in denial, pretending like there's nothing going on, just sort of pushing it under the rug like there's no problem here as our hairs is on fire and, you know, our ulcers are forming, uh, does absolutely no good. But at least identifying, even if the best we can do is, I feel awful and there, there's this thing happening, I don't know what it is, but I'm at least recognizing there's a thing, there's a there there, is a great first step. So my encouragement to you, if you're facing it right now, whatever that thing might be, at least, at least say it out loud and recognize what it is. That is the problem. Jesus models that here. But then there's another very interesting tactic here that I think we can employ. That is that when Jesus saw this thing, when he recognized what it was, he had a word for it. Silence. Be still. He had a word for it. It came out of his mouth. He heard himself say it. It worked his vocal cords. Other people heard him say it. And I think it actually works. So there have been times in my life where, uh, and this would happen with a wide range of issues, uh, where I might be particularly frustrated about things. And I don't know if you've ever done this, uh, but if I'm driving alone in the car and in one of these particular uh, moments or seasons or whatever, where something has happened or I've done something or, Whatever, it's, you know, I got a hairball kind of issue. Have you ever done this, where uh, you just sort of groan out, Arr! or oh! have you ever done that at all, just sort of make it audible, ah! kind of a thing? Have you ever done that before? Yeah. I think that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's he's saying something out loud to just recognize there's a thing, but he gives uh, he gives a qualified language to it. Peace, be still. Silence. Be still. And I think when we actually do that, I know something happens. Physiologically, something happens. Can you identify a storm going on in your life right now? Can you identify anything at all? Any sort of storm whatsoever in your life that you can think of? And think, okay, this is something I'm not real happy about. Can any of you think about that? Are any of you having trouble thinking of anything at all? Because I have a long list that I can share with you, (laughs) things you should be upset about (laughs) to help ruin your day-to-day. I want you to think about that thing uh, and and identify it for a second, okay? Uh, I want to tell you a a little factual thing that I came across in a podcast that I heard about a month ago. And so um, this is a brain science kind of nerdy thing, but... they notice that when people uh, commute, when they have a long commute home after work, where it's bumper to bumper traffic, and it's kind of cutthroat, who's going to get in front of who? They notice that when people get home, they're grumpy. Isn't that a revelation? <laughs> <laughs> they found out there's a reason why they're grumpy and they're kind of keyed up. It has to do with how we're made. We are made as fight or flight people. Our bodies, when we enter into that kind of pressure traffic, our bodies and our minds go into fight or flight mode. Now, normally, when there's an actual real enemy to deal with, and we're fighting or we're fleeing, we are burning off all of this energy that we have built up for the battle. And so once the battle is over, we don't feel keyed up anymore in the same way. But when you're just sitting in a car, similar, in battle for 45 minutes or so, with no energy kicked out, when you get to the end of that, you actually feel exhausted because of what's happening in your brain chemistry. When Lynn and I uh, would commute home together uh, and we'd look at our app to see what, what routes are the fastest, uh, we would often, I live in the Green Valley over by uh, Fairfield, uh, Costco. Uh, when we moved here 20-something years ago, that's all we could afford. That's still all we can afford. We're, <laughs> we're fine with it, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> <California>. <laughs> I think I'm the only one that can hardly afford a house in that. So anyway,
2: uh,
1: we have we live over there, and so we look at our app to see, well, which is the fastest way home. and if going through Jamison Canyons, if that route takes at least 45 minutes, we choose another route. We go up and over the mountain. And you know what happens when we do? We waste a little more gas (laughs) for one. But when we get home, instead of being grumpy, instead of feeling like slugs because all of this pent up energy has been eating us, instead we come home energized, ready to take a walk. You know why? Because we just took this beautiful drive up over a mountain and through vineyards, and by the time we're home, we're refreshed. Isn't that crazy? Well, sometimes uh, when we are keyed up with these types of things, facing our storms, facing our Goliaths, we don't even know that we have this stuff picked <laughs> up. But employing what Jesus did by simply saying, silence, be still, directed at our thing, actually does help. So we're going to try it. So I want you to think about that thing. Uh, if, you, if it's just a hairball, then think about the hairball. Uh, If you've got a dozen things, you know what what each one of them is. You can, in your head, put them all together and just think about one thing. I just want you to picture it. Can you picture it? Count of three, I just want you to say, silence, be still. Okay, you can do that. Count of three, picture it, visualize it. One, two, three. Silence, be still. That was not at all convincing. Because we're talking about a storm, right? We're talking about a Goliath. So try it again, but I want you to get your lungs into it. Okay? Count of three. One, two, three. Silence! Be still! Feels pretty good. And I think it actually shifts things. I think the things start to happen in our brain when it gets out of our mouths and we say, there is a problem. It gets it out on the table. So if nothing else, so far, we have When you're entrenched in fear, everybody else around you is big chicken. Know that God is with you. Use everything you've got at your your command and enter into the bread and trust that God is going to be with you for the best outcome. And if you're in the boat and the storms are raging, you think it's all going down. And remember that God is with you. Identify the thing. Don't be in denial any longer. Call it out. Say its name. And I think you'll be surprised at just by what a boy. Last thing I have for you, and this is fairly brief, even though it's a long text. This is a letter from uh, the Apostle Paul to a group of believers at ancient Corinth. Even though it says 2 Corinthians, it's probably 4 Corinthians, but we lost two of them. Uh, so it's our Second Corinthians. And in this passage, he's going to relay uh, some of what he's been through as a follower of Jesus. And I'll give you a heads up. Uh, he's been through us. So this is what Paul says. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. This reminded me, Brian, of your don't your wasted son. Because he's basically saying, don't waste this life that you've been given, this life that we have uh, with, the, with the power of Christ with us. For God says, at just the right time, I hurt you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed. The right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now, if you would, uh, please do what I did. and Take a pen which is on your table and underline right time and then underline today and underline that word salvation. Because something happens to you neurologically when you put pen to paper and pay attention to certain things. So what Paul is saying is the right time is now. Today is the day of your salvation. Don't putting it off. And you know why Paul is brilliant here? He's he's kind of stating the obvious. Here's why he's brilliant. You don't have yesterday anymore. Yesterday's gone. It's in your memory, but you can't go back to that. It's gone. And guess what? I don't mean to sound morbid, I'm not trying to sound morbid. You do not have tomorrow. You're probably going to live to tomorrow, but by the time you get to tomorrow, it'll be today. The only thing you have is today. There's never a salvation for tomorrow, for today, because that's the only now that we have. And the salvation that we're talking about is this, this wholeness, this being made well again, this, this pursuing something that is richer. It's not about getting your butt to heaven. That certainly is a, a hopeful piece of it that Brian sang about, but it's about right now. Becoming more well and Paul is saying this is before you today Don't put it off for tomorrow, which doesn't exist Do it today. Why wait? And then Paul goes on to describe his experience, which I'm not sure is a great sales pitch Because he says we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us And no one will find fault with our ministry And everything we do we show that we are true ministers of God we patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. In other words, as a Jesus follower doing the Jesus thing, he's been patiently enduring troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. It's not been easy. We've been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored, even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We owe nothing, and yet we have everything. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you, and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. I am asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. Paul is saying that he's been through hell. By doing the Jesus thing, by bringing more shalom into the world with shalom, he has meant resistance. Because the world's operating system is not built on shalom. It's built on competition. It's built on who has more. That's a zero-sum game. Is the way the world operates. But the way the kingdom of God operates is different. The way the kingdom of God operates is shalom, and when shalom gets in the face of people who are entrenched in the operating system of this world of have and have nots, if I'm the winner and you're the loser, they don't like it because it changes the rules of the game and it forces them to look at each other and the entire world differently. Jesus did not get killed because he was a political or military threat. He got killed because he spoke truth to power, power to do it, and power to kill it. He had to go through a day of horrible treatment. Paul, Jesus' follower, went through years of it. Why would he go through years of that? Because he knew that the only thing that there really Didn't matter to Paul if he was going to go for it, or, or if he was going to get beaten or praised, because
2: at the end of the day, he
1: knew who he was and who he was, and that's what mattered the most. It was worth the pain of the suffering. You know, there's this phrase that I'm absolutely certain has been written on uh, wall hangings that I'm guessing you can buy at home goods, uh, maybe Kirklands, and maybe you've heard this phrase. I know I've seen it on Facebook. It says. Today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Anybody grow up just a little bit right now? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you've heard this. You've heard it. It's schmaltzy. Wouldn't you like to return that gift? Wouldn't it be fun to go to Home Goods today <laughs> and say, hey, I got this sign that says today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. And they say, you mean you want to return the sign? It's like, no, I want to return the day. How can I return the day? <laughs> right? Have you ever had one of those days? You're like, I don't want this present. Of course you have. Of course you have. And yet, there's enough element of truth in it. That we need to pay attention to it. I think we need to add another phrase to it. All right. So, today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. But here's, I think, another truth. The more we choose to be present, the more we choose to be present, the more we're able to see the gift.
2: So there is a a well-known journalist
1: uh, from a generation ago, named William Seabrook, and uh, he wrote a book called A Silent* and it was a part of sharing his experience in an asylum. He checked himself into an asylum in 1933 because he was struggling with alcoholism. And back in 1933, there weren't residential treatment facilities and the best you could do was go into an asylum. And so he went in there and at the, well, for the first period of time while he's trying to beat his addiction, he wasn't having any of what anybody was saying. Uh, he was constantly challenging what they were saying. They'd say one principle or truth, and he'd come up with six "yeah, buts" behind it to dissuade them. Anything they would say is true, he would say that's not true. He was such a jerk <laughs> in, the, in that environment, causing so much trouble that they almost kicked him out of the asylum. Was that bad? But then one day. He came across this quote from a Stoic philosopher, Epictetus. This is the quote. Every event has two handles, one by which it can be carried and one by which it can't. If your brother does you wrong, don't grab it by his wronging, because this is the handle incapable of lifting it. Instead, use the other, that he is your brother. That you were raised together, and then you will have hold of the handle that carries. When he heard that quote, it's like a light bulb went on for him, and he recognized that he had another decision to make. That there wasn't just one way of dealing with this thing, and he chose to accept the handle that was being described by the people who been through it ahead of him. And it was a game changer. He went from discounting everything they had to say actually celebrating what they had to say and finding great joy in sobriety. You know, those kind of moments happen to us if we choose to be present. The more we choose to be present, the more we're able to see the gift
2: of the day. I had a similar experience a month ago. So I was up at a personal retreat all by myself, uh, three days, and the end of
1: the second night before I was going to go home the next day, I was looking forward to having a brief visit with a friend who happens to be a counselor, Uh, and then um, just enjoying a quiet night uh, surrounded by this beautiful creation up above Middletown at this retreat center, and so I'm waiting for my friend, and uh, he comes, and we start having a conversation by this pool, which is really lovely, and uh, my friend's a, a professional counselor, and that means that he listens to people all day long, but nobody listens to him. Uh, people really stink at listening. Have you noticed that? People people are incredibly incurious for the most part. <laughs> Those people if given the chance, have a lot to say, but they have a short attention span for listening. In fact... I think it's even worse than that. I think we've got a chronic problem in our culture and our time where whenever anybody else is talking, you may be doing this right now. You're thinking about all your thoughts and things you'd like to say in response to the person you should be listening to. Anyway, you know, this, this happens. This is real. And so we have
2: professional
1: listeners in our world, counselors, pastors. That's one of the things I know how to do is be an attentive listener and just hear people talk and reflect back on what I'm hearing. So for my buddy, uh, he was just talking, and what I expected to be a short conversation turned into two and a half hours of <laughs> my friend finally being able to talk. And about every 45 minutes, he'd even laugh at himself. He's like, I just can't believe I'm talking this much. And I was like, that's great. I'm getting, I'm getting to know him better, so no problem. But you know, I went to, back to my cabin that night. And I was thinking, you know, that, that, not necessarily. I wasn't exhausted by it at all, but I was thinking that's not exactly what I had in mind for my last evening there. And I was a little bit grumpy about it. Not at my friends, but just, yeah, that's just the way it happened. I, I wasn't seeing it as a gift. And I went to bed kind of grumpy. Got <coughs> the next morning, just kind of grumpy and kind of grumpy <coughs> <laughs> And kind of wondering, hey, what's going on in me that I'm having this kind of reaction? What do I need to look at here that I'm having? <coughs> And somewhere in my devotion, time, prayer, meditation stuff, something shifted in me to where I was able to recognize what was really there all along. That it was a gift that I was able to give my friends who nobody listens to. It was a gift. I got to give to him to hear his story. For another human being to actually care enough to just listen, and the joy that that gave him, I just realized I got to be a part of that guy's joy today, and it completely transformed me. My uh, countenance shifted. I went from grumpy to elated. I'm not kidding. It was that radical. Kind of like, kind of like William Seabrook's experience in the asylum. And it all stemmed from being present to the moment, to being open to seeing it a different way. And when that happened, I began to see the present as the gift that it was. I think that's why Paul was able to say, even though we've gone through hell, we had joy. They couldn't rob that from us because they chose to be there in the moment fully. And appreciate what was there. Not get distracted by the hardship. Not get distracted by the hunger or the beatings. But to recognize that they were basing their lives on the ultimate being of God. Who they had learned through Jesus Christ. And it really works. And it can work for you. But there is... There is a need for God to have a dance partner in this. That's where you and I come in. You may be in the trenches facing your Goliath. There is an invitation for you to know that God is with you, that God has given you the skill set and the capacity to do what you can for that moment, if you will. You may be in the boat that feels like it's about to go down and the thunderstorm is raging. In the middle of that, there can be peace and a solution to identify what it is you're dealing with and even speak into it, which will have the capacity to, like a massage, working out your, your knots and in your, in your muscles, have the capacity to slowly and surely calm the waters. You have the capacity to realize that this invitation from God is not for tomorrow. It is not for yesterday. Today is the day of that salvation, if you will have it. Tomorrow's not coming. Because by the time we get there, it'll be today. (laughs) I know, that's a little weird, but you get what I'm saying. (laughs) And every day
2: then becomes your choice. Now is the day of salvation, if you will have it. That's all I got. (laughs) Well,
1: well, I am curious, before we, you know, kind of bring this time together to a close, uh, what's going on in you? Uh, Ben is going to be our faithful Mike Mouseketeer. Help us out with that. You don't have to say anything. Maybe nobody's got anything, but I know in the first service, just not that it's a competition, but... But the first service had a few insights. So (laughs) anybody, anything
2: bubbling up? Anything uh, messing with you? Any questions,
1: reactions? Any insights that
2: I might have missed? Yeah, Bill. (laughs) Keep talking into
1: it. Oh, good. Uh, I have a question about the modern-day miracle about the uh, crab fisherman that went down several feet off the coast of Massachusetts. He was mm, swallowed by a whale and then spit back out. Also, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Daniel and the lions, why he wasn't eating up. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to wait because those texts aren't coming around. Or come to practice or set up a meeting.
2: I have an insight for myself. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, just to let you guys know where I stand,
0: I probably had four back surgery, spinal surgery
1: within the next two to three months. And so that's the Goliath
0: blooming on my horizon. And
1: what I get from today, and I get a lot of play in the moment, mindfulness like and practice,
2: is that it's, only, it's my job to stay at
1: the day. And I love the part you said about little David that God gave him all the skills
0: he needed <laughs> in order to face the Goliath and to just do what he can do and not try to be everything that he can think of to
2: combat that involvement. So I really like that. That's my takeaway today. It's just day and day. All the rest of it's not my I <laughs> so Yes. Great. Do the next best thing. Yes. Yeah. Anybody else? I had a friend in the uh, early service, uh, he asked the question,
1: how do you find out what handles are available to deal with situations in a different way? And he's a chaplain, and so I turned the question back on him, and one of the things uh, he said was community. But sometimes when we are in isolation all by ourselves, We literally don't have the capacity to see anything else because we only have our eyes at work. But it's when we surround ourselves with people who love us and we trust and it's mutual, then we have different vantage points. Sometimes the friend, the community member that you need to reach out to, is a professional, a counselor, to help you see things, to hear you, and help you unpack or unravel the hairball, or a pastor who knows how to listen and give you feedback in some direction. And so if that's you today, if you're looking for those handles, because the way you've been doing things just simply hasn't been getting you where you want to go fast enough. Those kinds of things can accelerate your healing and your experience of salvation, which again is being made whole right here. And now. Let's pray together. We'll end with the uh, Lord's Prayer. So if you would, just close your eyes and be still with me for a moment. And what I would like you to do is uh, take a deep breath just to kind of blend your space a little bit. And I'm wondering, what what is the home for you today? How are you going to apply what we've
2: seen in these steps to your life today? You name it. commit to it. God, as we identify our Goliaths, our thunderstorms, our unknown future, we trust, we really trust that you're with us.
1: And like Linda started our service early, you are Abba. You are a dad that can be trusted for. You are good you love us. You are with us. You are for us. So may we walk forward in confidence, in faith, and love, knowing that we are building and basing our lives on the only thing that really is. And therefore, we are unshakable. To that end, God, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Today. Our Father, As benediction, would you rise with me and pull out your handouts and look for that little paragraph called St. Patrick's Breastplates? This is a wonderful piece to meditate on, by the way, if you're looking for something to include in that. Let's say it out loud together. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me.
2: Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left,
1: Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Thanks for coming today.
2: hope you had a great experience. We will see you next week at 8.30. All right. Have a good day.